0: So thank you all for being here. I have the pleasure of hosting this panel with a bunch of really interesting people space usually wins for the most interesting topic that you can have with other folks and today's a particularly auspicious day because there's also a launch in approximately four hours where SpaceX is taking up the you know an all civilian crew for really the first time to space um, so it's a great panel to have here we've got Chris, who's the founder of Astra, you know, a launch company. We have Delian who's both on the investing side and a founder of Varda, which is working to build manufacturing in space. And then we have Anusha, who's actually been to space and probably makes her the most interesting person here, but also the CEO of the XPRIZE. I thought given today, it might be nice to start with your experiences in space, Anusha. and you know what what does it mean that there is a civilian launch in probably four hours.
1: Uh, I'm super excited about it, obviously, and uh it happens to be uh the fifteenth anniversary of my launch, so it's all i think they planned it just for me but um I'm excited because it's a indicator of how far we've come uh, My family and I sponsored the first X wise, which was about uh opening up space to commercial activities to reduce the cost of launch to open up access and the fact that we had so many launches this year for civilians. And this one being particularly important because you have four civilians without any astronauts on board on their own going to an orbit above the space station and spending three days in space. I mean, you know, this this has never been done before and it shows that we have been able to create a safer, lower cost, plausible access to space. And this will be one of hopefully many that we will see. And um, if you haven't seen the story of the people who are launching, there is a, um, um, you know, there's a documentary on Netflix called Countdown that tells their stories beautifully. And uh, I will be watching and praying for their safe return uh, tonight
0: given that you know this is this is the trend and you were one of i don't know approximately 500 people who's ever been to space what what does it mean to you to be very special today but potentially yeah. not very special in the not too distant future at least in that regard
1: yeah no i think just going to space will be special regardless it's like now a lot of people go to mount everest and, and go to the summit whoever is able to achieve that it's a special moment in their life and it touches them in a different way. And I think space has that potential for humanity. Um, for me, the experience of being space has given me a complete new perspective on what's important in my life. It has given a, given me a global perspective on what's important uh, in, in what I can do in my life. Uh, it relates to uh, this world, this planet that we call home. And it has sort of triggered um, the fact that we all know We read reports, but when you're in space, you can see it with your own eyes at this beautiful planet, the only place we can call home right now. It's changing and it's not going to be pleasant for us to live on it anymore. And uh, a lot of people talk about protecting our planet. We're not protecting the planet at all, we're protecting ourselves. The planet will be fine without us, probably better off without us. But if we want to continue living here or have a plan B and go someplace else and, and live on another planet, which will not be as nice as our own planet. Still, we need to um, pay attention and there's a lot of work we need to do and that's why we need to stop up conferences, investment and the risk takers who are willing to invest in the future.
0: So this is a question for everyone, but Delian, I thought maybe you could give us your perspective, having been both on the investor side and also the founder of a company that's in the space industry. Why now? I mean, this is seems like there's been huge proliferation of companies both from launch to services to actual you know space travel what 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 has changed in the last few years
2: i always think of space as being sort of like three separate waves and that we're only at the very beginning of the third wave where the first wave was like government-funded hardware doing government projects i you know the apollo days second phase being for the first time Government funded, but the hardware is produced by external groups. So, um, you know, the early work of you know, SpaceX or Planet Labs sort of being that like second wave and the third wave being entirely commercially funded and entirely commercially built where now for the first time there's companies that are going public like, you know, Astra and a recent one that also went public, Spire, where a significant portion of their like revenues and what keeps the companies afloat is entirely commercial revenues. Um, And obviously that just has a much larger scale and depth than, you know, just being entirely sort of based on the government for your revenues. And so I think that's what makes it fundamentally different is like there was this sort of like, You know, glass ceiling in the space 2.0 days that you just could never break through because there's like a limited scale you could get to, versus now just the scales that companies can operate at in terms of number of launches, satellites that are going up, the amount of engineers you can afford is just so much greater than anything that we've done in the private industry. And that's what's allowing now for, you know, space to be safe enough and proliferate enough that you can actually have now individual citizens. So just as like the, you know, Falcon 9 like landing the first time was extremely exciting, I'm sure a day like today in another five years is also going to seem extremely boring like oh private civilians going up to space on a three-day trip like you know grandma did that last week
1: yeah. and i think there is this really nice time where the moore's law and miniaturization and uh, reduction of costs in satellites and other sensing technologies has enabled to have more customers for the launch uh companies that you mentioned so uh, if if we didn't reduce the cost of access to space. They could build really cheap satellites, but they couldn't get it to space. So they need this type of solutions.
0: I mean, I think that's a great transition. I mean, we were, you know, I was lucky enough to invest in SpaceX in 2008, right? So it's been a very long time, but they have really brought down the cost of launch to enable this. It sounds like this is an enabling, you know, fact, but, you know, Chris, you've built Astra. You're really trying to accelerate that trend. Can you give people a sense of, what the launch market looks like today, but I think more interestingly, what is the launch market going to look like in the next five to 10 years?
2: I think building on uh this isn't 1960 anymore. In 1960, when NASA built the Apollo and the, the Mercury, the Gemini programs, this was about 1% to 2% of GDP. NASA had hundreds of thousands of employees. They were hiring everyone who graduated. Uh, this this was a, a program that uh, was only possible if, if the resources of, of one of the most uh, wealthy nations on the planet put a, con- a considerable amount of its wealth to work uh, SpaceX has now built uh, starship uh, you know and you, you might think SpaceX has raised a lot of capital but it's nothing compared to two percent of GDP right and so I think you know with what Astra is doing we're building a rocket factory where we can turn out a rocket a day uh, like a car you know the the robots and the automation and the software, Uh, That exists today has enabled a level of safety, a level of cost efficiency, both in the production and the operation of these systems. Uh, The idea that with a planet's constellation, uh, a single employee runs a constellation of hundreds of of satellites from a from a a browser. The technology to make this accessible uh, is, as I think, the really big story here. And this year, we'll have maybe a dozen pure play space companies go public. Astro might've been the first, but there've been six since. And some of these companies are going public through SPAC mergers or through direct offerings, but they're all gonna have billions of dollars to uh, help improve life on earth from space, to help connect the planet, observe the planet, uh, really create, space is the ultimate high ground. And now we'll finally have all these entrepreneurs building disruptive technologies to, to provide global context Global new sources of information. Uh, It's just this will be probably the most significant decade uh, in the history
0: of of space. I mean, Delian touched on this. You know, when he mentioned that SpaceX landed the Falcon Nine, it was really only six years ago, and and so it's become not only passé but expected, right? If the if the rocket doesn't land, people people actually think that there was a there was a huge problem. So, what are the sorts of things that are going to be passé? As we look forward to you know what people are excited by now, like I remember at the beginning I, I literally went to every SpaceX launch. If I did that now, I would probably just camp out in Florida and only be at spacex launches right there's so, so there's, there's so many of them they're barely events. W- what are the things that people can look forward to being commonplace in the future
1: i I can maybe jump in um one. One thing that I tried to talk about how the space access to space is opening up new opportunities, comparing it to the internet era. So, when companies like Netscape came around, just making it easy and understandable so people can be creative created an opportunity. No one could predict what would come next, and none of the things we have today, anyone would have predicted it back then. But just opening up and creating a playground was important and i think that's what we're doing i'm personally very interested in um looking at how we can put things we're doing here on on the surface of our planet up in the orbit and do it more efficiently and without a an impact on our planet Um, i think there will be opportunities for manufacturing things in space there are things that we can manufacture better in space than you can in the gravity well of our planet so, I think that's a huge opportunity. There are medical opportunities. Um, there are some problems to be solved, but I think maybe we can take our data centers, and especially for non real time applications, all the pictures that we get on our FaceTime and Instagram and all these things, we can put them, store in computers that have already been built for space. So, there may be opportunities like this that I think will be exciting to see happen.
0: I mean, you mentioned manufacturing, it seems like the easiest uh over to talk about Varda. I mean, we've seen in you know, the current environment, you know, with the pandemic that supply chains are very hard. You know, can you talk a little bit about how to build manufacturing, not just on this planet, that's easy, but you're gonna do it in space, you're gonna to have to build the supply chains, what exists today and what needs to exist to make this work.
2: See, I think one thing that sometimes is underappreciated is like the United States has been manufacturing in space now for like almost a decade. Uh, They've just been small scale sort of like research, you know, projects that have been done on the International Space Station. But the reason that they've sort of never gotten much larger than that comes back to supply chains where you know if you're a commercial company relying on a research station that has a lot of you know safety security protocol etc can be difficult to rely on when you need products on a regular basis and so that was sort of the you know let's say intuition or thesis that we had around varda which was we're not going to try and do fundamentally you know new science that's what the, you know, International Space Station is for. We're just going to take that work and scale it up in a way where now commercial customers are gonna be comfortable with us being a part of their supply chain. Cause ideally, you know, Chris prints a rocket every day. We, you know, buy a launch on that rocket, you know, send whatever good it is, whether it's, you know, fiber optics, semiconductors, pharmaceuticals, bring them back down to our customers down here on Earth, I think the following day. And that sort of relates my answer to your original question, which was, I think the thing that will become much more normalized over the next five to 10 years is people's lives outside of just the space community being touched by space. Like right now, it's really special if you get to be like a, you know, planet lab satellite operator operating 100 satellites. But you know, most people out in New York City don't really get to appreciate the benefits of space. Because I think five to ten years from now, you're going to start to see whether it's hobbyist satellites being set up or these types of products that can be produced in space, impacting people's life down here on Earth and bringing the benefits of
0: space to a much much wider group than ever than has ever had it before. I mean, Chris, you must be seeing this from a customer perspective. Who are the people that are? You know, what industries? You know, you don't need to give us specific companies, but what are the industries that are signing that are buying launches today? That You never would have done this historically. I think that there's traditionally been government customers.
2: That's just a small fraction of of our current backlog of launches. We have over 50 launches under contract now. Most of them are commercial companies Mm -hmm. that have new sensors that are able to see CO2 in the atmosphere or uh, use radars to understand uh, where things are moving around in the ocean, uh, where weather patterns uh, at much higher uh, level of fidelity can be predicted. Uh, to make aviation safer, you know, there's, there's, for uh, each of these, there's probably a dozen companies that are competing to build technology to, to, to create some killer app, you know, and and they all have to be in space. And when space was really hard to get to, uh, that became a barrier. Uh, as uh, companies like SpaceX and, and Astra and, and Rocket Lab and others are building these uh, more affordable but differentiated launch services, we can get them to space much more easily. It just blows open the opportunity for new innovation. Uh, when a startup can get funded and fly in space, it, it's kind of like back in the in the days where internet companies had to build data centers. Well, that was really hard. What's harder than building a data center is building a data center in space. So like the more we can make space accessible, uh, the more innovation and, and the more we're going to see more companies start up and, uh, and and solve really important problems.
0: So I mean, you, should, you sort of mentioned this in you know, given your role at the X Prize you you've sort of tried to catalyze commercial investors, you know, commercial companies. Where do you see that going forward and what do you think the role of government is, you know, in this industry if it's not necessarily to, you know, help build launch anymore.
1: So I think um in specific to government there're two areas that government can be helpful. When we launched our first competition which now it's almost 20 uh you know 25 years more than 25 years um We had to really fight hard and it took us 10 years to get FAA to agree to give a launch license for our teams. And now that group has become the group at FAA that gives launch licenses to commercial companies. So um, uh, supportive regulatory system, at least regulatory system that's open-minded to allow for innovation to happen, is important. The next stop is the moon. Right now we're talking about commercial companies actually launching and landing on the moon. The ownership rights of who owns what on the moon, and when you extract something and then you you bring it back or you throw it back, you launch it back, And it lands someplace else. Who owns that? All these ownership, there's so many interesting questions that needs to be solved that I think regulatory bodies need to come together and make sure, one, we use space for peaceful reasons so we don't turn it into another war zone. And two, that they create an environment of creativity and collaboration so people can easily work together and innovate. So that's, I think, very important. At Xprize, we're looking at the next 25 years, what can we do? Of course, the the fact that we are launching so much, it's important for us to actually clean up after ourselves too. So we're looking at orbital debris as one area of work. We're looking at protecting our planet and and asteroid impact, and how can we predict if there will be an asteroid impact? Because right now, we don't track all the objects in orbit um, easily. Um, and I think there are opportunities, again, for um, closed-loop systems. If we're going to go to the moon, we need closed-loop systems. They're good for space, but they will be also good for us here on Earth. So There's innovation there that we're looking at, and fuel and energy. So when I say manufacturing, I also include manufacturing using institute um, material for fuel, for um, building Material and other uh, things that we need if we want to build a permanent habitat on on the surface of the moon,
0: I mean, you mentioned regulatory. Where does the u s fit into that relative to internet you know re- with relative to international cooperation? you know are you seeing leadership at the u s level? Are you seeing it elsewhere?
1: Uh, I'm seeing everyone sort of protecting (laughs) their IP and not even wanting to get to the table right now because they don't have the right answer and so they don't want to talk about it. That's what I'm seeing right now.
0: So it'll get sorted once it has to get sorted.
1: It has to get sorted. And the more they wait, the more difficult it will be. And maybe it's a good thing because people will go there and they will make up their own rules. (laughs) Then they have to catch up.
0: (laughs) That has certainly happened throughout history.
1: Yes, yes.
0: I mean, Delian, you're obviously investing in addition to, you know, being a founder at, at Varda. You know, how do you think about the regulatory environment? You know, how do you think about the government in terms of support for companies that you're looking at within the sector of space? I think one thing that's been uh, a really exciting
2: change in space specifically over the past, let's say three or four years, has been that both the DOD and NASA have recognized that they no longer have an innovation problem, but purely an adoption problem. That they are no longer the ones that are pushing the fold on technology as much, but they need to create systems to actually like, you know, bring that in and draw that in. And so as an investor, I think what it's allowed me to do is because you have institutions like the Defense Innovation Unit, that is the only acquisitions group that rolls up directly to the Secretary of Defense, now you can actually rely on the dod and nasa as a much more consistent stepping stone stepping stone for much deeper technologies like i think in you know even 2000 you know 8 when you were 9 when you originally were you know investing in spacex that in some ways was like probably as far as one could possibly extend whereas now I feel like relative to where technology is at today we can extend even further because you don't have to go through suing you know the air force to get them to give you contracts instead now there's just like a much more standardized you know process for that and if anything they're incentivized for it DIU actually tracks like how many venture dollars their companies actually raise and very much wants to you know collaborate with private industry and so I find it to be a really exciting time where things that previously you know I always talk about in space investing you have to be get careful to not go so far into the future that you're investing in sci-fi and just never make returns. But I do feel like it has actually fundamentally shifted further out where maybe, you know, before I had to really focus on, okay, commercial revenues within four years versus now it's like, well, maybe the DOD satisfies you for the first two or three. So maybe it's commercial revenues within seven years. And I think
0: that's a really exciting time. So you think there's a transition point that's happening where it's the government can still step in for the first few years, but commercial revenues are close enough for commercial investors? I take advantage of.
2: I still think in today's day and age, like people talk about, oh, you should be investing on 20, 30, 40 year time horizons. I think it's also just hard to incentivize employees to work on such long time horizons. People want to see equity prices going up and things getting more exciting. And that's just hard to do unless you have sort of somewhat near-term commercial revenues. Otherwise, you do sort of get this, you know, glass ceiling. And like, yes, back in the day, we had, you know, 2% of the U.S.'s GDP focus on this. And so that glass ceiling was really high. Uh, But right now, without sort of the potential for commercial revenues, you're artificially, you know, limiting your company. So even if in theory, there were investors that were willing to invest on such long time horizons,
0: I don't think employees are willing to. I mean, venture, I mean, this is very fundamentally venture investing. And the good thing is venture has a long time horizon. I don't think it has that long a time horizon. And you have this weird dynamic that venture time horizons are actually longer than human time horizons in many respects. So you, you need these things to line up to, to make the incentives work. I think building on
2: Delian's earlier phases here, uh, when the phase was the government was paying for things, that's what led to the aerospace industry, where you have cost plus contracts. You can only have so much growth if your revenue is cost plus 10%. Right? And so I think what's happened is we've seen new a new space tech industry just like there was the pharmaceutical became biotech because when you're commercially driven, you can grow revenues faster. And so pure play space companies that are, that are uh, out building new capabilities that are directly marketing new data that never existed to new customers are growing faster. They're growing their revenues faster. And so the way that analysts have to look at companies is, is not like an aerospace and defense cost plus selling 100 airplanes to United Airlines kind of business. But it's about the growth that you would see when you have a pure play, tightly integrated, vertically integrated uh, company. It's, it's creating a new capability and, and delivering it to customers. I think it's, we've entered the space tech era this year. Right. Where it's, it's now actually businesses. Right. We're sure playing that sell products, not like sell and like, you know, our contractors. That's right. what I love about you know the DIU or amongst many of these various groups, AFRL, Spaceworks, etc., that are now interested in no longer just providing contracts to commercial companies and trying to convince them to like follow our spec, but instead they're saying, Oh, you've got a product that's already on the market, let me go utilize that product. So I'm sure when certain DOD groups are coming to Chris and saying, I would like a rocket launch, they're not saying, Oh, I need the rockets paint to be this color and for the engines to work like this, etc. They're just saying, Oh, great, you have a certain number of kilograms you can get me to order Orbit. This is how much you're going to charge me. Great. This is now a product that I can purchase rather than a contract that I'm trying to put together. Yeah. I guarantee you NASA
0: not telling Elon how to build rockets. I, I, I am pretty certain that they have a spec sheet that they very much dislike deviating from. Uh, I mean, there's been a lot of talk about all these mega constellations. I mean, SpaceX is obviously the furthest along in terms of launching and providing services. You know, Chris, how is that playing out from a launch perspective you know, where, where are you sort of seeing the innovation in these constellations? Because I mean, you mentioned Planet also. I mean, I think Planet and SpaceX represent 99% of the satellites in orbit. Today. Today. Uh, <laughs> SpaceX may just continue to try to keep that number going. Yeah, I think that there's probably half a dozen mega
2: constellations that are either uh, being deployed now or about to be deployed. And they're companies like Amazon that you know, have designs around, you know, multi-thousand satellite constellations. The difference is instead of uh, a space-based capability being a billion-dollar satellite developed over 10 years by an aerospace and defense company, uh, you're having high-tech startups use the technology that's in your smartphone, and by the way, it's way better, and the satellites are flying lower, which means you're inside the Earth's you know, magnetosphere, so you don't have to worry about radiation, and you're also refreshing the satellites. You know, Even with Starlink, they're replacing the satellites with uh, new satellites that have in-space laser links. So the, the kinds of technology refresh cycles, like in Moore's law and in the consumer electronics industry is now applying to space. And that wasn't true even just a few years ago. And so the, the rate of innovation in these mega constellations uh, is going to eclipse anything we've ever seen before. And it, you know, as cars become uh, you know, covered in cameras and, and drive themselves, they're going to need software updates. They're going to need to take the data that they're collecting and bring it back up to the cloud. There, there will be uh, incredible. Uh, revolution in how we think about uh, space as, as being intertwined in what we do better. These same trends are entirely what enable Varda as well, where it's, you know, people talk about, oh, space manufacturing is finally viable because of decreasing launch costs. And it's like, yes, that's a portion of it. But in some ways, an even bigger portion is the fact that like a decade ago, We would have had to build our entire spacecraft from the ground up entirely from scratch. It would have been a multi-billion dollar project. Instead, today, I can focus on what we're particularly good at, which is making those products in space and then bringing them down for everything from the flight computer to the solar panel to the in-space propulsion, all that stuff has numerous commercial providers, all of whom are increasing their capabilities, decreasing their costs every single year. And that's a lot of the like sort of cost curves and capability increases that are actually allowing something like Varda to exist today. In some ways, even more so than like the Falcon 9 become reusable. That's the cherry on top. But like the fact that we can, you know, close a deal with Rocket Lab to purchase their Photon platform, which is their in-house satellite platform rather than develop it ourselves, is the only reason why something like Varda is
0: capable to be done today. You I know, mean, we're seeing a lot of kind of stack developments that, you know, started in software, has moved into hardware, has now you know moved into the hardware of space. You, know, you talked a little bit about in trying to invest in, you know, science, not science fiction. How can people draw the line as investors for the things that are, you know, actually possible today versus maybe one day? I think
2: these things are actually like simple or logical analyses in the space industry especially as i've gotten deeper into it i think people think of space as like this very broad you know hand wavy how do i actually understand it but if you actually dive into it the number of like ceos or founders that have raised north of let's say 10 million dollars is actually probably on the order of like i would guess 20. like there isn't a space industry there's just there's 20 people and so if you can solve a problem for one of those 20 people in the next four years then you have a viable company that's not sci-fi and if you do not then it's sci-fi because who's going to be your customer and that's especially true if you're selling into space now if you're selling into like more broad groups like kind of varda is where it's like our customers aren't actually other space companies it's a little different but a lot of times i get a patient on space and you're like yes we're going to sell to other space companies and i'm like great which one they're like some future hypothetical one. I'm like, okay, so in order for me to believe in your company, I also need to believe in a hypothetical other company that hasn't been started yet, doesn't exist, and nobody is working on to work in order for you to have a customer. That's, I think, the simple delineation. If Chris or the other 19 CEOs aren't going to buy your stuff, there's
0: probably nobody they will. right? I sort of refer to that as startup squared. It's like you need the startup to work, and then you need this other startup to work, and you're not really sure the likelihood of it, the at least the second one. I mean, Chris, you've kind of gone through the whole capital formation cycle in this industry. How has that conversation with investors evolved over the last, when did you start, Astro? How long? We started you... in 2016. So, so we're so in, not
2: yet five years old.
0: Okay. So I, I mean, I feel like that's a lifetime right now. Uh, so it's like the equivalent of 25 years. H- how has the conversation changed during that period? Yeah, I think that if you go back five years, we were still
2: in the, in the, the pioneer and the hobbyist phase, if you will. Uh, so you look at Anusha, you look at what Richard uh, Branson and, and Jeff Bezos just did, they're pioneers. It's it's like the Charles Lindbergh's and the Amelia Earhart's of the space generation. And so uh tonight, uh when the SpaceX launch happens, we're gonna go from being pioneers to being passengers. And, and I think that's a huge evolution. Uh and going from the hobbyist to the entrepreneur phase uh, is a huge evolution. So so now we see entrepreneurs going and, and there are space funds, there are space ETFs, uh there are there are business models. Uh, there are companies, there are many companies going public in this space. So we've now reached, a, you know, we've reached a point in history where space is mainstream. And, it, you know, we've got analysts saying it's going to be a one, two trillion dollar industry with double digit growth over the next decade. That's a real business. And, and so it's not hobbyists anymore. It, it's, it's real. It's venture capitalists, entrepreneurs, ETFs, analysts covering it as a, as a sector, space tech sector.
0: I wanted to close with with you and your because I think there's something you know from I talk to a few people who've been to space, and it it always seems to very fundamentally change their viewpoint and and so maybe I would just close it with you know what are the things that you wish people understood you know had they had the opportunity to to go to space like you've been um,
1: it's It's an important question, and one of the reasons uh, i I tell people I wish. Our policymaker, our leader, government's uh, leader would actually have this opportunity to go to space because one fundamental truth that you know intuitively, but this sort of it becomes real when you're in space is the fact that there's only one planet. That those maps that you see in geography um, books that has these lines drawn, there is nothing separating us. If the pandemic taught us one thing is that you cannot contain anything, any particular part of the world. So problems spread and good things spread too. So we need to look at our planet as our collective home, that it requires our collaboration to make it a viable place for life. And it requires us to um, live in peace and harmony and, and in a sustainable manner with the environment we live in. We do that in our own homes, but we think that our home protects us from everything else, and that's not true. So when we re this is a realization I had in space and, and I really hoped I had a way to convey it so it becomes part of the decision making for everyone, in every business, in everything you do in life and everything you do on a daily basis, because that's what it takes to make this planet a place for all of us to have children, to raise our children and their grandchildren and um, be very happy and hopeful uh, about the future that we are going to have.
0: Well, hopefully more people get that experience. And I want to thank all of you for having this conversation.
1: Thank you. Thank
0: you.